Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Sanjay, what can you tell us about this disease? Well, you know, I I think immediately what you think of when you hear this uh, coronavirus, is this going to go the way of SARS and MERS? SARS was in nearly two dozen countries, 8,000 people infected, 800 people died. Is it going to go that way or is it going to be more of a, a more innocuous, gets people sick but people don't really die? We don't know yet. That was CNN chief medical correspondent and host of this podcast, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, on January 21st, back when we didn't really know much about the coronavirus. Back when our daily conversations didn't include words like quarantine, social distance, spike protein. And here we are, nearly a year later. It has certainly been a whirlwind, surreal at times, and this pandemic has changed our lives in so many ways. So today we're doing something different. Sanjay's going to be the guest, and I'll be the one asking questions about what lessons he's taking away from covering this pandemic since the beginning. I'm CNN anchor Anderson Cooper. And I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. And this is Coronavirus, Fact versus Fiction. So, uh, okay, I guess uh, this, I haven't done a podcast before, so. <laughs> oh, I think it's just you and me at this point. When this started, I mean, nobody had a real sense of obviously the, the ebbs and flows of it, but did you have any belief that we would be where we are now? No, I absolutely did not. And, and it was really interesting, um, Anderson. I remember thinking to myself that, I remember when they first described it as a novel coronavirus and just that word novel and like new, right? Something that you haven't experienced before. And I remember at one point it sort of like dawned on me that, you know, when's the last time you really experienced something for the first time? As adults, you know, mostly, you know, we have experiences that may be slight alterations, but the idea that it was a novel virus, like I remember it just hit me one day because I think the, what I did in the beginning was you want to put it in this box of something that you know. So I immediately thought SARS, for example, because that had also been a coronavirus. It, it was back in 2003, so this was going to act like SARS. Or it was going to act like H1N1, which was another pandemic. And I remember, Anderson, I was talking to my mom one day about this, and, and she, she's an automotive engineer. And I, do you know what the car was first called when, when, it, when it was introduced? No, uh, what? It was called the horseless carriage. Oh, right. Of course. Okay. Yeah. The horseless carriage. Because they couldn't stop defining it by horses still. And it was kind of like this virus. Everyone wanted to define it by something they knew. And it was totally different. So I had no idea this was going to last this long. You know, when when one looks back at how our understanding of the virus has changed, it was officially declared a pandemic in March. Back then, Dr. Fauci, the, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, was said masks weren't necessary. Turns out, obviously, they are crucial to preventing the spread of, of, of this virus. The, you know, we also thought the virus is mainly spread through respiratory droplets. Later, you know, turned out it, it could hang in the air. So how does, what, what, actually, I guess the question is, was there something in the virus you were most surprised by, or was it simply all the stuff surrounding it, the failure of leadership, the failure of, of, of response? 
I think when, you know, the first data came out and everyone was thinking, again, this is like a, you know, like a flu virus. People aren't really going to spread unless they're sick, coughing and sneezing. That was sort of, I think, what was sort of initially dictating some of the comments about masks. There weren't enough masks. Save them for the healthcare workers. By the way, when you're contagious, you should be home anyways, uh, not, not spreading the virus. This is like beginning of March. And then the data started coming out showing that this could spread asymptomatically. That was a huge surprise. It really was. I mean, that's not typically how viruses spread. Usually when you're most contagious, coughing and sneezing, that's when you spread it the most. Maybe this makes sense to people now, but at the time, it was a huge surprise. And I think it also changed the recommendations around masks. The, the, the failure of, of leadership, I'll just say, that super surprised me. What, a, what, a, what an opportunity to basically say we are one of the wealthiest countries in the world. We have one of the best public health systems in the world. We set the tone for the rest of the world. Other countries call their organizations the CDC in deference to the one in our country. You know, all this stuff. And yet we, we, just, we just weren't acting. I mean, it was unbelievable to me. I just didn't, I, I, I couldn't understand what it was. It made me question myself. Am I taking this too seriously, given the amazing amount of inaction that you're seeing on the federal level? There was, you know, in, in thinking about talking to you today, I, I was running through all the different stories that you and I have covered together from, uh, you know, the, the earthquake in Haiti. Um, I mean, all the places we've been, you and I worked on a documentary involving zo zoonotic viruses. We were yeah. in Cameroon and, and, and Congo uh, years ago. You know, certainly in a place like Haiti, uh, you it's so engrossing. It is so life and death. And so it's, you know, oftentimes the stories we cover are things that have occurred in the past and we're going, you know, weeks after or days after or months after sometimes and kind of retelling a story that's already yeah. happened. But in, in, in things like Haiti or Somali and the famine or Katrina, those were ongoing life and death events, which were occurring in real time while we were there for weeks on end. And, and those are very rare. And this is just a whole other kind of life and death reality. Yeah. So 300,000 people have, have died more than that now. And, and I, like, I'm a medical reporter working for an international news organization in the middle of a pandemic. And I like to think one of the, one of the most trusted news organizations, you know, around. Like, I think part of the reason I got into this job and, and wanted to do it, I did see a value from a public health perspective and getting messages out in a credible way that was engaging and, and accessible to people. And so I'm the medical reporter in the United States in the middle of this 2020 pandemic. And our country was the worst in the world, you know, in terms of cases and, and hospitalizations and deaths. And, and by the way, I'm not like saying that's my fault or anything. I'm just saying like, gosh, I must not have done a very good job. If you go back and say, so who were the medical reporters at that time? Oh, these guys. Well, so nobody basically was listening to them. I think it's understandable to feel that way. Um, I, I would argue that actually, you know, you're only looking at something. You, you, you don't know what you don't know, which is you don't right. know what the numbers would be had you not been raising the alarm early and had you not been offering counter messages to the president of the United States, who is deriding mask wearing from the moment he announced that that was a CDC guideline. So um, I, I also, you know, the other thing I, I do think of in my own work to a limited degree, but certainly in yours is, you know, for just one person, if it makes a difference in one person's life, yeah. then it's worth it, which sounds such a cliche phrase, but at the same time, you know what? 
a, a person's life is is valuable and if it does make some difference in people's lives and if it does help families to have the story of their loved one who died told and at the same time informs others of the reality of a situation i, I think there's value in that do, do you i mean as a doctor i don't know I, I, it's an interesting thing i mean as a reporter one has to be you know you're on the scene you're enmeshed in somebody's in the the viscera of somebody's life and yeah. um sometimes in very difficult cir- circumstances and as a doctor i think there's a certain i would imagine a certain you know you have to you're dealing with tragedy on a regular basis and you have to figure out a way to kind of um compartmentalize it. And I'm wondering, is there a conflict between the two, the two jobs that Mm. you have? That's really interesting, uh, Anderson. Um, I've never really seen it as a, as a conflict. I mean, I think that probably, um, I, I don't think I'm that great at compartmentalizing that kind of stuff. You know, you end up talking to patients' families a lot, right? As a neurosurgeon, um, somebody comes in, you know, having a perfectly good day. Now suddenly, the worst day of their life because of trauma of some sort, whatever it may be, and they're either just operated or about to operate. And you go talk to the family. That those those are, I mean, and they they're there's such confusion and 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 anticipation and and hope and you know, uh, but obviously a lot of worry. And so you're trying to balance all these all these emotions for somebody, and you feel like you need to really be present in that. You know, mm-hmm. you kind of have to absorb it as opposed to walling it off, you know, so you, you kind of embrace them. But I think in some ways medicine has helped me find those stories as opposed to feeling like it's a different, a different skill set. Hmm. I mean, I, I remember being in Cameroon and, and Congo with you, I guess it was maybe 2012 or, or so. Um, anyway, sometime around there, we were doing zoonotic viruses. We we're going out literally with virus hunters who were sort of tracking viruses that cross over. And we went out with actual hunter hunters to see sort of the uh, the moment when potentially, when human comes in contact with potential viruses, when an animal is caught in the forest and killed. Uh, I don't know that I want to bring up the... Uh, the, the <laughs> I was, the, I was the just going to say, that, like, that I know how... I know how brave you are, like all the stories you've covered, but like bringing this story up to me right now is like one of the bravest <laughs> things you've done. <laughs> I know. I As I started telling it, I suddenly remembered the end of the story and realized, oh, wait a minute. Oh, now I'm in too deep. Basically, for people listening, the, the, Sanjay and I both went out with I'm, different I'm curious groups. to hear Anderson's version, so I'm just going <laughs> to listen to this. Sanjay and I both went out with different groups of hunters in a very, very remote region in Cameroon. And Sanjay's group of hunters, you know, really, uh, you know, hunting is really hard and (laughs) it took them, they, they didn't have a great time finding game, finding animals that they were going to be killing and they were killing to, to eat for, uh, for their families. Um, and by all accounts, Sanjay had a very grueling hours and hours and hours I went out with a group of hunters and my team went out and my, our hunters didn't find anything, but we did very early on after about an hour of a very strenuous trek for about an hour, they did run into another group of hunters who were coming back with a whole bunch of animals that they had killed. So we were able to knock out this, the, the shooting and the interviews that we wanted to do 
very quickly, we get back to this remote, remote out village. Uh, and, you know, we realized we had a couple hours, we had many hours left and we could get hours. back to the capital <laughs> and to the actual hotel where we could actually get a meal. And, and we, so it seemed at the time a good idea. Well, you know, for a lot of reasons to just do that. <laughs> and what, you know, what, what, of course, from Sanjay's perspective, he came back after an exhausting day in the, in the forest, expecting that we would have at least had a meal prepared or something ready for him, which is a fair assumption, only to find that we had left and <laughs> he was stuck there. Yeah, that that is that is that is. You were like, stuck overnight yeah. there, weren't you? Because the roads were too dangerous, or something. Yeah, yeah. That, so you got you got like seventy five percent of the story. I think <laughs> I think it was the, it was the last twenty five. See what happened, and, and I don't even know if you know. So we came back to the the little village where you know little huts yeah. that we were all staying in, and you guys were not there. So what would have been a reasonable person's assumption at that point? Oh no! That, Did we not leave a note that you were still out there? So we were worried, really. I mean, for, like at a time, like we, it was hard on us. These guys were still, God, we feel terrible, awful. And so then we ended up spending the night out there, you know, just getting chowed alive. By the way, we didn't really have any food because despite all the eight, nine hours that we were out there compared to year one, we, we still didn't really have a good catch. So we, we hardly ate. And then the next day we drove to where you guys were in an un-air-conditioned car. I was told it was not air-conditioned. And it was just, I mean, it was dusty. We had the windows open. And then you were kind enough when you got in and and you know, and looked at us and we're all dusty in the back seat. And and you're like, hey, you know, hi, hey guys, how's it going? And I'm like, well, you know, actually Anderson, not so well. And you're in the front seat. And I'll forget this in my whole life. You go, how come you guys didn't turn on the air conditioning? And then you hit a button and the air conditioning came on. <laughs> I thought this driver never even told us there was air conditioning. We're we're out here baking like you know in the middle oh of some God. Star Wars movie. It was crazy. I'd forgotten the air conditioning part. <laughs> yeah. Oof. That was sort of the final the final twisting of the knife, really. It was time to go. Yeah. But but uh, the reason I can't I can't really remember the reason I, I brought it up, but um but I mean this was I mean the whole thing we were doing was about zoonotic viruses, about the likelihood of there being gonna be another pandemic. And what can be done to prepare? And you, you know, you, you look at that. You look at Bill Gates's, you know, TED talk in what 2015, I think it was, when he was talking about, you know, for like tens of billions of dollars, we could do a preparedness program that would have made a difference. Yeah, I think he said what seventy six cents per person or something. There was some way of they 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 basically said if you want to become pandemic proof, essentially, here's what it would cost, and it would involve you know virus hunters going out there and finding those swaps of virus that are happening between animals and humans at the time. You know, being able to do quick analytics in the field, uh, bolstering up the public health, all this stuff, right? And, and it made total sense. And and there was even a pandemic sort of playbook that had been left behind in anticipation after, you know, if, you, if we forget that 2009 was H1N1. That was the first year of the first term of uh, Obama's presidency. It was one of the first things he dealt with. So there was a pandemic playbook. I think I, 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 was, I was surprised that we didn't react, but I also was sort of reminded that human beings, I guess maybe in general, aren't really good at, at dealing with things in a, in a vigorous way that they can't see or feel or have evidence of. Like if I tell you a storm is coming and it's blue skies outside, you think, well, skies look perfect. I think that's almost like the attitude we had in the beginning. We could have reacted so much differently 
even even though we didn't have the pandemic playbook, even though that had been thrown out, we could have still done so much better if we had just actually believed that the storm was coming. You know, oftentimes on stories, I think, you know, in Haiti and Katrina, there I didn't want to leave for a long time, for, you know, weeks and weeks and weeks, and I wasn't taking weekends off. But I think there reaches a point where oftentimes, at least for me, I'm like, I, I, I got to stop. Like, I just have to, I, I can't do this anymore. What, has there been that for you at all on this or a moment where you felt like, you know what, this is just ridiculous? I mean, Anderson, I mean, you, you and I have known each other a long time. I mean, it, it, I think, I, mean, I think we both really, I mean, respect each other's work ethics, all kidding aside. And, and. I, I've really been head down in this story. I mean, I just, I just have. I mean, it's you know, I've really since January, getting up around five o'clock every morning, and and uh, and I mean the weekends too, because I'm making calls to people that I've been talking to in China, and I'm trying to learn everything I can, and and it's been like a little bit like an addiction. I got to tell you, I, I mean, and that's not healthy, but there have been definitely times when either because of just outright fatigue or because of what we were talking about earlier. We're like, what am I really doing here? Is it making a difference? I mean, can't even get people to wear masks, let alone, you know, all the big stuff that we have to talk about. Um, and then I'm just frustrated. I'm just like, what am I, you know, I got one life to live. Is this, is it, if I'm not making a difference here, is that going to, is that going to, you know, really matter? I, you know, and, and I got to tell you as well, you know, just go, I just, because I really thought about this reciprocal altruism thing a lot. I used to think when, when I was a kid, I used to think like, what is the, th the one thing that will galvanize the world together? What's the one thing? And I always used to say it would probably be a common threat, right? And like the sci-fi movies, like aliens landing and the, the countries of the world all come together, you know, to, to sort of evaluate, is this a threat? Is it not? Whatever it might be. And then there was this pandemic, like a real pandemic. And I thought, well, this is like a, this is like a similar sort of thing. It's almost like an alien came from another planet. It's this virus. It's totally novel. You know, it's doing all these things. And yet, as you say, we, we fractured. We broke, you know. That was, supposed to, that was supposed to like cement us. And instead it cracked us. It was, it was like too much pressure or, or maybe it revealed our true selves. I don't know. But that part of it's been, I think, existentially a little bit challenging, this past year, like, who are we? Why, we? We couldn't be bothered to take care of each other. Well, I do think a lot of that goes down to leadership and leadership from the top. I mean, uh, if, you know, obviously there, there's differing political beliefs and opinions and stuff, but I do think if, if there was a different tone and actually different, you know, actions from, uh, from a White House, then I, I think there would have been a better chance that there would have been more unity and certainly at least more mask wearing. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Like, again, just who are we? Be a human being means, you know, you take care of each other, regardless yeah. of what some elected leader or a boss or somebody else says, you know, just, but anyways, you know, it's, it's, it's great to be able to have these kinds of conversations with somebody like you, because frankly, I don't get to have them very often. Yeah. Well, Sanjay, I appreciate, um, obviously, all, all you do, uh, as, as I always do, except that one time in the Cameroon when I left you and abandoned you. <laughs> I appreciated your work. I just didn't want to stick around. I got it. The Four Seasons <laughs> took precedence over your friendship yeah, well, with Sanjay. It wasn't quite the Four Seasons, but you know. anyway, you know, it was a long time ago. Uh, Sanjay, always a pleasure. Thank you. Anderson, thank you so much. What a trip down memory lane. When I look back on 2020, I imagine I'll shake my head in disbelief at how I possibly covered the biggest health story of my lifetime from my basement with my daughters in their virtual classrooms upstairs. It is hard to believe. 
Above all, when I look back on this year, I'm going to remember the lives we lost. And I'm going to carry the lessons we learned at their expense for the rest of my career. The entire experience has been painful, it's been difficult, and it's been an enormous privilege. I want to take a moment to acknowledge and thank the hundreds of thousands of public health professionals and essential workers for their efforts this year. We could not have gotten through 2020 without you. Thank you. If you have questions, please record them as a voice memo and email them to asksanjay at cnn.com. We might even include them on the next podcast. We'll be back tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.